0: It it looks like a, a regular microphone, and that's true. It's plugged yeah. into a fancy interface, which is why oh, it sounds so good. Oh, man. You know, I used to be that. No, I had no idea. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Say more about that thing. <laughs> uh Wait, did you start the podcast? The recording has already started, and I get to do editing, oh. so... I'll get your intro of you, but that's I used to be deaf as a hot opener.
1: I'm Robert Bizarro. I'm a physician by training, but I've been in tech for about fifteen years. I am the CEO of a company called On M One. Who, when patients call M One now, the ambulance come, they see one of our doctors on there. This company is transforming the face of healthcare. But above all, they're in the hospital to. Zero to your uh, old school basically are the
0: joy of that Thanks. I'm um, Olin Scott Muir, and this is the Frontier Psychiatrist podcast.
1: When I got married, my wife and I were dating. We lived in two different countries. We dated, dated long distance and just traveled back and forth for a few months. We put our lives together. And one of the things she kept saying is, You don't listen very well. And, then, and I was like, Huh, that's interesting. So we went to the ENT and he was like, Oh, like when did you figure this out? And I was like when I got married. So he thought we were joking and sent us on our way throughout that year. I lost my hearing more and more. I how it was spontaneous genetic mutation that caused our thoroughness of the state bone. So I went from sixty uh, percent to forty to like twenty. You know, eventually Otakon was one of the,
0: it turned a huge help for me. They built these devices for me and that a big so. For the audience, we're, we're both doctors and we have some idea what you're talking about. Okay. So okay. essentially you have a genetic mutation that meant the bones that conduct from vibration in the air to your cochlea, so you, your brain can encode it, had okay. something going wrong. And so you were losing your hearing in the middle of your life. At a, essentially out of nowhere, you know, well, that getting it right. Yeah, the
1: thing is, there's a point where bold, there's not enough vibration and you tend to notice it suddenly. I will, that will i right, in a away, speaking with uh, a coworker worker there. And all of a sudden, by mid sentence, he stops. I'm like, that's weird. But I'm like, he's weird anyway. But I look and I his those are still moving. And that's when I was like, huh, okay. So I, I knocked on the desk and I realized, oh my God, it's me. I you know, called my wife, went home, That created a series of events. I was the only two people in the world have this, this genetic mutation. And it's,
0: it's such a trying time because I... I had a newborn and I couldn't hear him. That they
1: cry, but you have to hear it. Exactly. And there was one instance where I sent out the alarm at the house and I oh, happening. Look at your function. Oh, and I actually knew sign language. Um, 10 years prior, but here, I, I think for me, it was like, I was never part of the community, so a few things happened. Right? And this is one, I mastered how to let read real because I knew, and then it was a journey of four years following the doctor. I continued to work my career, right? But at the point where I was at St. Peter's hospital, it was just chaos that way. New York magazine had Written article about me, about my success in tech space, but no one knew that this was going on. Oh, God. And I go to the doctor. She's, hey, I got to let you know, it's time for you to quit your career. This is actually dangerous. You're at a point where even driving is dangerous for you. You can't hear cars. And I was like, no way. There's no way that it's going to go this way. Push comes to shove. My wife is, let's just continue to try. We ended up going to this one doctor. 10 minutes away from the house, and she was like, I'm a recent grad, but I have this friend who was the president of the EAP Association, and she might be able to help. And I was like, you know what, I'll try anything. And uh, that doctor ended up being doctor. She was like, this is one of those doctors that she doesn't care about money. She just is, I just want to try new things in medicine. And she said, if you entrust your life to me on this, I will at least give you a shot. I'll never forget it. waking up from surgery and she's like hold this works And they're unpacking. Think about it, they had to take out bones out of my head. And yeah. Literally, they're unpacking it. And there was a point where speaking, and now I'm like speaking to her, but I end up turning around. And I'm like, just walk into the room. And then I look back at her and her eyes are welled up with tears.
0: Because you heard someone walk in the room and she knew it worked. No, no. Oh,
1: I heard myself for the first time. I've been hearing myself in bone conduction all this time. And it was the first time I was hearing myself in air. Oh, my in God. years. And that's how she realized it had worked. And she was like, "Ah, oh, it worked. And it was amazing. Yeah. And she had to convince me to go back into the room the other year. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, and up and so, so I'm like, listen, I survived. I just. Like, right. a good idea. one's good enough. She we got to do this for a and I'm like, I don't know. I, I, uh, yeah. But eventually I did. And now I'm a Healthcare miracle and a case study in
0: medicine. Yeah. I, I am too. Uh, a number of times over. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I'm the first child born after a reversed vasectomy. Yeah. So my wow. Yeah, my dad, my mom was a medical editor. My mm-hmm. dad had gotten a vasectomy 12 years before he met her. My mother was married to the grandson of HG Wells and who was a doctor and English and not agreed fit for her. And my dad was married to someone and had gotten a vasectomy, was never going to have another kid. Mm-hmm. And then he met my mom and fell in love and decided maybe not, but no one had ever reversed a vasectomy after 12 years before And he went to urologist after urologist. And I only found out about this when I was 12 years old and found an article in a magazine that my mother had ghostwritten because she was a medical writer. She wrote the biomedical reports of the Apollo space program. But oh, my God, the magazine is I'm 12 years old. And in my parents like library, I find a magazine that's sex in the 80s or 1978.
1: This is the one I'm reading.
0: But why are my parents on the cover? That is and, crazy.
1: And it's crazy. crazy.
0: So I would not have existed had my dad not found that kind of same urologist who was willing to give an impossible thing a try. Wow. And it worked. You're one of two people on earth, right? There's no way anyone could know what to do because it hadn't been ever done before. Exactly. Because who else were they going to do it on? And yeah. what I'm interested in is you, had, you were lucky enough to have some introduction to deaf culture and how to communicate. Yeah. The thing that, that I'm honing in on is there's a built-in misunderstanding because everyone who met you, including you, would imagine you could hear. Yeah, actually,
1: two things happened during that stage. First of all, yeah, I don't regret going through that experience privately. Only my very close friends knew because if I would have brought it out, it would have been part of my identity. And I I'd feel like it would have overshadowed a lot of great work that I was doing at the time. And that was the goal is to I remember someone offering me, they were like, well, you can get one of those cookie blasts because you're disabled. Actually, what's funny is my license still says I'm I need to go to the DMV and take- say, <laughs> you're is in the, very- the small cohort of undead. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad that I did not go through that publicly because it would have been part of my identity. But the number that the biggest thing that happened, and I think this is is such an amazing blessing. Owen, oh, I remember the first time I heard water. I remember the first time, I remember coming home after the journey and being like, hey, you've been in the alarm of the car? She said, it's always been there. Just hearing that frequency the first
0: time. I remember the first time,
1: which most humans don't, Yeah.
0: right? So everything became American
1: to me because I'm like,
0: oh, that's what that sounds like. Uh, oh, so, you, so if I'm understanding correctly, since you had this mutation, you were always hearing less than other people. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. yeah a whole- so basically,
1: no, and, and you gotta understand sound. You're you something. You're three what on when you hear right. I could hear normally for years. Mutation happens. I'm hearing electronically like, for years, right? <laughs> electronic hearing, and it, it sounds different. It yeah. sounds robotic, right? Yeah. All the sounds that I knew were electronic from music to uh, I you anything.
0: You had yeah. heard like the 8-bit sh- the version of the world. Yeah. And then whole surgery.
1: I remember after the surgery, my, my wife took me. The surgery happened on Saturday Sinai. And my wife took me to this Italian restaurant. And I was like, hey, there's music here. If you can't, there's music in our restaurant. I'm like, oh my god, this is how people eat. eat. We can't think of the background. So it's those simple things that really just, I don't know, they, they change your
0: perspective. I I just want to hone in on this because my contention for the world is that everybody has some version of this experience where there's an editing of our sensory experience, which is unique to each of us. And you had it because of a thing in your ear, which you can describe and everyone could get, oh, you had a genetic mutation you could hear differently. And now you could hear other stuff. And it was amazing. And my guess is a lot of the misunderstandings around, say, depression, for example, or any other disability are because we don't have access to the fact that the other person is essentially deaf to positive feelings or blind to the right interpretation, et cetera, deaf to trust. I love how you're positioning it. Honestly, that's
1: phenomenal. That that I, And it's someone who experienced on both sides, oh, yeah, that's exactly how to reason. it. And one of the things that i heard from that experience is there are things that I don't know or that I can't really empathize because I haven't been there. But I have the understanding now that there might be a blind spot, right? Before, I hung around deaf people all the time. I didn't know what it was to be deaf. Right. Right. Like I remember being on the frame with friends and, and I'm like, hey, they're talking about us. Hey, friends, my deaf friends be like, I can't hear them. I'm like, yeah, but I can't. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's the same way. Like with understand, have that empathy to understand that there's another side, even though you're sharing that moment with someone,
0: they might be depressed. They, they might be going through something. My guess is that kind of the most helpful frame for all of us might be any of us might be deaf to this experience. Wow. If we assume we might be missing something profound, then all of us have a better shot of getting it because the assumption that we might not be getting it is actually getting it. For some reason, humanity works in a way where it's like you have to get hit by a car to pay your help and it hurts,
1: right? And for some reason, we, we think that way seriously, And I, I can even think about moments of my life where I'm, listen, I'm, I'm a Hispanic person, most people think I'm black, but relatively successful, right? Living in, in a wealthy area. And, and I rarely see racism, right? It wasn't until one of my neighbors put up a Confederate flag. And I was like, holy crap, there are racist people around me, right? Mm-hmm. And then I realized he never saw that in me. He just saw, oh, two, low, two welcome doctors of that, right? Yeah. And I just realized,
0: Lee. Keep me blinded until it's here, yeah. right? Um. I, I, I think that's, that's a great example that I was talking, I did a podcast a while back with a colleague who is, he's in the special operations community and his wife is black and he's in, you know, an Arab Jew, but looks white enough that he can pass, right? He's got the kind of privilege, as he put it, I have the level of privilege that you used to run for president. But... My kid's going to be black. So in America, it doesn't matter, right? You're black when the cops pull you over and decide you are. I think the Black Lives Matter allowed me to have the right conversations with people. And I think they're and just become more aware. The inability to recognize racism for people who haven't experienced it is like deafness. Because we don't hear the frequencies that are the dog whistles of structural racism. We didn't have the well-earned mistrust. Like, when you're black, your parents raise you in some way to interact with the world to protect yourself. So there is a deafness to the experience of others. So that's, that's the point I try to bring across sometimes
1: is I, did, I wasn't raised in a way where I was aware that this was going on. I lived in, I feel like Growing up, life had lost. But the thing is, I've now recognized that there are people that have very different experiences.
0: To the point that now I protect my kids from
1: those experiences.
0: When you say, I protect my kids from those experiences, what do you actually mean? Yeah, that's a good question
1: because recently we had a conversation about this.
0: Because my kids are blonde. They look like the Lannister twins.
1: Like my boy doesn't wear Jordans. If my boy would want to wear Jordans and long a low white tee and would be like, that he doesn't know Rand at all. Say the other kid, the other day, a kid came over and told him, oh, guess what? And that's from Jordan's. Like sparring borrowing this kid Jordan's shoes or something. He doesn't know about Brands, but I... He thought Jordan's was the name of the person. Jordan was of the person, not Jordan's okay. it's, it's, which, in extent, I feel like kids are running up like me that's probably something I would... Success as parent. And I want to make sure that my kids, there's going to come a point where I'm going to have these conversations with my kids. It's
0: actually, no, like, you, you can't do that. That's not what I imagined you meant when you said, I protect them. I thought something different. My kids will
1: drive for a dangerous neighborhood with me. That's what I mean by protect, them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like my kids go to two, three countries every year. And some of these countries aren't the best countries. They see kids being in on their streets. My wife and I met overseas and medical mission. Chances are these kids are gonna attack on now on this mission. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I'm not I I what I mean by protect them is
0: helping them understand that this is the reality of the world. Right. And that's a different I, definition of protect than shield or hide or limit oh, their exposure to completely. No, but here's the thing. If I shield them, Going to be either
1: very kids or light is going to hit them when they have to leave the nest. What I mean is, I hold their hand or walk them through the fire. I, I show them that it's out there.
0: That's critical. Cool. The thing that we can really do as parents is model responding to that world in a way that they can learn from, because that's the most powerful lesson we can teach. Um, I, I think it also extends to the workplace. I went to the University of Rochester for medical school, which was an unbelievable blessing. Yeah. Um. And I did the medical education pathway, which, uh, again, like the current president of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology is Jeffrey Linus, who was my mentor and teacher in the medical education pathway. Yeah, uh, unbelievable privilege. And one of the questions we asked is like, how much can we actually fix now in medical school, and how much of it was like kindergarten stuff, right? When people look at, say, our former president and go, he's crazy. I don't know that to someone who's had the experiences that the former president has had, that he's wrong about what he's lived. And so many people are correct about what they've lived. Like, <laughs> oh, I see what you mean? I agree with you.
1: It, in the sense, that, um, like people behave based on the, they behave based on the models that they've acquired through the experience sure. that they live. That's what we see in every person. Every it doesn't have to be present. Every person and you and I. We, we see that across the room. Now here's the thing. Sometimes there's sometimes levels of violence that affects the ethic of how we should function kind. And I think those are, are the boundaries of Hitler, right? That those things were cross. When I think the yeah, Patient, is. and if they have across the board, regardless of your experience, your background, race class or gender, you have to have a moral compass that that at least matches with humanity. And I think that's what how do you have to have that?
0: Do well, something you know, you end up doing a really stupid thing I agree with you <laughs> all the time, because obviously, but so my my, my, my contention is that. Are, are, I, I want everyone to have a moral compass, and some people don't or have different ones or don't have the experience as the compass, like if you take a real compass and you put it near a magnet, it goes off. Okay. And if you grow up with your moral compass next to some weird magnet, it's going to be off. And so my question is, when we're thinking about, say, the culture of medicine, which we have some impact on because we work in it. How can we make sure we're getting like the weird magnetic fields off of the moral compass of our profession so that whatever people have internally can actually be pointed at some kind of true north? And how do we create a culture of true northing? I'm going to give an example from the ER for my time. And I want you to run with it. Okay. Cool. I, was an, I was an attending in the ER I was working in as a psychiatry attending, but I was emergency medicine appointed also. Oncoming doctor came on, there was a patient doing handoff. There's a trans-identified patient in the waiting room and I used their chosen pronouns and the incoming attending did not. And they said, look, it doesn't matter in here. It's just us. And I said, no, it's not. It matters a lot. That's a vulnerable person. And if we fuck it up in here, they're going to know and they're never going to trust us and they're going to be right to never trust us with their care. I don't know who on this team has that experience or might or will but somebody in the room has had some very personal experience with what we're talking about. So your assumption that it's just us isn't good enough. And that was my last shift. I reported it to senior management. I had a supervisor in that same hospital who transitioned later and was and is a leader in the field. But I learned over and over again that it's just us is almost never true. Because someone in the room is deaf, someone in the room is trans, someone in the room has whatever problem you're being dismissive of, and there is a moral compass thing that I only had the privilege to speak out about because I happened to be the attending at the time.
1: It's funny you mentioned it. it? Here's what I, I feel like as I've gotten older, I basically have mastered on learning much because that's the reason that I learned my last 30-something years while I, I, I've gotten wrong, but I continue to all learn. One of the things that I learned for sure is the more I read and expose myself, the more of an aesthetic I can become and I'll be a better leader, just a better human. My son reads everything, right? Or I share with my son, like literally, my son, like the other day, this kid is six. So dad, let's review your board. These are your board members. So who are your investors? And I'm like, okay. And then dad, who are the ones? So, who's the investor's boss? That's what I want to know. And, and good you know, question, six year old. This kid is six. I right? that's, that's just who he is. That, that learner spirit we should always have at whatever Rage age and exposed to everything by bookshop so with biographies. And this is an opportunity for him to be able to And me sharing stories, which is he's going
0: to realize. I'm sure. There's a tension built into being a biographer. Yeah, if you have, yes, if that's that's true, right? If you build an emotional connection and like the person,
1: you're gonna be more hesitant to actually write something difficult. For.
0: What? Which isn't to say you can't write a great biography. It's just to say acknowledging that risk is part of the jam.
1: Yeah, I like that.
0: And it's true. And so I think for, I really like the
1: dense stuff. <laughs> not oh, oh man! Did he write Steve Jobs when he was still alive? Yes, I think he
0: did. Yeah, a lot, well, a lot, but regardless, he was participating with Steve Jobs and Steve knew a biography biographies being written about him. And so that's going to Heisenberg uncertain. So my actual favorite biography of all time is Heisenberg's War, which is the biography of Werner von Heisenberg, who chose to run the Nazi atomic bomb program or chose to run the program to sabotage it. He knew Hitler couldn't get this awful thing, and he knew he was capable of running a program that could not crank out a bomb.
1: You know, what, what's fascinating about history is that we're able to read it through different lenses and we will never be able to know. Actually, here's the thing. If someone, if my life was more not like those celebrities are, right? Yeah. And I would even read about my life, right? I'm pretty sure I would have a very different perspective of myself. I <laughs> Think about it. I think people should do that. Imagine if your life is stuff right? You could turn this into, oh, Ramon was very private a little bit C, because he didn't want anyone to hear that he was deaf. Actually, no, Ramon was someone else. He posted every day and it was like a social media guy. So it, it's amazing how you Once you to pull yourself out, you can basically create
0: different angles,
1: but that's what happens with people too.
0: I'm going to try to pull it back to the beginning and see if I do a good enough job. So, my contention is okay. that all of us are essentially biographers of ourselves. Okay. And we're telling a story to ourselves to explain our experience based on edited information. And we don't have perfect access to the ways in which it's edited. And so, if we accept that there are biases in biographers who have to live with their subjects, we may also want to accept that we have biases in the stories we tell ourselves. And so just like we have to have uncertainty about other people, maybe that same uncertainty could apply to the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves.
1: Question. I do I, yeah, I see how you're seeing it.
0: All of us are a little bit deaf in one way or another, or a lot. And we tell ourselves a story that edits out information and we tell ourselves stories that are believable because that's what our brain does. That should be the title of the podcast. All of us are going to be deaf It's so true, though. It's wild. If I were to rewind on your choice to not disclose the deafness of the time. Yeah. You had reasons that made sense to you. And that's why you did it. But anybody should be able to guess that you had reasons that made sense to you. And the important question for the biographers that are all of us about you and our experience of you would be yeah. how did it make sense to him?
1: Yeah. There's two ways things go. Too when I tell people that, they're either what are you ashamed of the disabled community, right? Or wow, I'm wow, such a strong person. that you are able to pull through. And <laughs> it seems like you don't whip,
0: right? Yeah. But when you look back, I think the best I could later the I had.
1: Yeah,
0: that was it. In a way that made sense to you based on the access to information you had, which we all know now had a built in bias because you had a surgery that changed it. where yeah. And your career as a music critic was pushed back all I the music. I want to try to stick to landing on this. With the experience you had and the choices you had to make that. What does this tell you about the role of disability advocacy and accessibility now?
1: Here's the thing about people like me. Chances are you and I at some point in our lives are going to be here, or just something actually happens, right? I got to experience that early on, but I also got to experience what it meant to really be safe for years. It wasn't like, oh, I broke my foot kind of thing. I'd this for a week, I think years this way, mastering ways. There are people that don't have that option to able to go out and have people that yeah. are to take risks, get better. I, I empathize differently. And regardless of disability, I have to become one of them and tomorrow, I could become one of them again. Remember, it happened in an instance. So. Yeah. So I, t- to me, you know, here I am. Like, well, one of the cases that I see in you know, building is people with disability that don't want to go to the hospital, parents with autism reach out to me and tell me, thank you, because of the company you're building, they were able to treat them at home, I think it's just a community, that's of creating a larger community that that we really don't give importance to until it affects us. And then it's mm-hmm. over. That's what the.
0: Uh, I think the importance of accessibility is any of us can fall down in some way at any minute. Anybody could need accessible anything. And we get a better world if everything has a curb cut and every website is accessible to the visually impaired, because that might be you tomorrow. And it de risks disability to have the world be accessible. So the reason we need to think about trust and mistrust in people who have disabilities and the reason we need to be relentlessly doing a better, endlessly better job of being more accessible and signaling in the same dog whistle way <laughs> racism signals itself. We can signal the doors open to you in a way that will be accessible. And an accessible door is a signal to everybody that there is some thought that went into this, even for the most vulnerable. Boom. I, what you just said right now, it's home.
1: As someone who travels two or three times a week, I have a carry-on with wheels and you know the ramps that are created everywhere? Those were created for disabled people that now everyone uses. Escalators, everyone uses them now. Caption, captions, both captions. Other times you, you want to read because there's so much chaos happening around. Everyone uses it. And uh, I think we have to acknowledge that. Uh, People's sensibility is one of the things that actually stepped forward and made it so much easier for all of us. Yeah. All for literally everyone. everyone. And when we see it that way, then we start turning the left saying, thank you. right? Thank you. And how can I help it? How can I be part of a solution as well? Yeah.
0: And so I, I think uh, it's a really beautiful way of framing it. And thank you. I'll have you do your intro view because we didn't get it at the beginning, and then I can copy-paste. You are? Hey, I am. Um, I'm human. And now we're done. Awesome.